Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week on Movable Dough, I sit down with a composer to talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and, of course, their music. Come with me as we explore each unique path into composition and what they have to share with the world. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Dwight Bigler. Dwight is the Director of Choral Activities at Virginia Tech University, where he has taught since 2009. He has been a clinician and guest conductor for high schools and universities throughout the country as well as internationally. Dwight earned his bachelor's and master's degree from Brigham Young University and a DMA from the University of Texas at Austin. He won the 2011 National Collegiate Choral Organization Choral Music Series Publication Contest and is a recipient of two Barlow Endowments for Music Composition Grants. His music is published with Oxford University Press, Hinshaw, Walton, and Alliance Music Publishers. Dwight Bigler, welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Looking forward to visiting with you. Well, you know, Dwight, I think I have known you longer than any of the guests I've interviewed so far. So <laughs> I, I first met you bad, but <laughs> we go way back. It's true. Yeah. So I first met you when I was a freshman at Rick's College, which is now BYU Idaho, back in 1995. And you were the accompanist for our fledgling men's choir. Uh, and then you and I reconnected at BYU and I tracked your career to Texas and then to Virginia. And you and I finally had a chance to meet up and talk now as colleagues at the ACDA convention in February. Everyone I know that knows Dwight Bigler absolutely loves Dwight Bigler. So I am so excited for my listeners to get to know you as well. So let's start back at the beginning. You grew up in Blackfoot, Idaho. What was your musical upbringing like there? Oh, I love Blackfoot. Growing up there was beautiful. It's a small town, about 10,000 people. And we had uh, we had some amazing music educators uh, in the schools there in Blackfoot. They were key to training a, a group of us that have ended up working in music professionally. A number of, of, of our friends and colleagues that went through that program are now working. So it, it's a testament to the importance of having good music educators and, and a, a school system that supports that. Uh, my family sang and together all the time. Uh, I, I've my mother helped me write in my journal as a five-year-old the day that we bought a piano. I was very excited, but I couldn't oh, wow. actually quite write it out. <laughs> She's helping us learn how to write in our journals. Uh, and I have written in there. I still have the journal. Today, we bought a piano. Uh, 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 a friend of ours at our, in our ward, in our church, uh, talked us into buying one. She said, your family needs a piano. Uh, and and to try to distract her, my parents uh, said, well, just come to the movies with us. She, she tried to tell them that there was <laughs> Kind of sale going on at the local music store, uh, and and so we took her to the movies, and then she said, "Well, you know, it's a midnight sale, so let's just drive right over there." And we'll <laughs> gotcha. <you> know. <laughs> so anyway, so we grew up singing and playing, and uh, our family was a band family. We didn't have an orchestra in the schools, but I, I started on piano and then dove into uh, flute. Actually, in sixth grade, okay. I asked to start on the oboe, but you know, like a, a wise music educator, they knew that that would be a little torturous for everyone involved as a sixth grader. <laughs> so they said, "Learn the flute as the same." fingerings and then I transferred over to to oboe in eighth grade and played the piccolo in in pep band and marched on the bass drum line and marching band and was the drum major played in the pit and played for musicals in the summer and sang in in uh, a mall that was my first stage role (laughs) and really only stage role but I (laughs) 
auditioned to be a shepherd and ended up with the lead role in them all in the night visitors. <laughs> there you go. Uh, anyway, so it was, it was a great place. Lots of music happening, a good community at both the church choir and school uh, choirs and bands and had some really great experiences. Yeah. yeah so I, I know you're a, a fantastic pianist. Uh, did you pick up, did you pick it up really easy? Did you struggle? Was it like a fish in water? I mean, what was it? I, it was, it, 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 I was like a fish in water. Yeah. With piano and my piano teacher at that time, Marilyn Goodworth, a dear family friend. Uh, she, she tells me like, she remembers more about it than I do. She says, she said she would give me little assignments about doing little chord progressions and things. And I would come back and have learned it in all the keys somehow. <laughs> Uh, and like, it just made sense to me. It's, it felt very natural and I, and I just loved it. Uh, that was awesome. yeah. So I, I just have always had that. I'm really grateful to have that background and have that kind of foundation on the piano it makes it has made it a huge difference for me. Yeah. But so what sort of music were you listening to as a teenager? Were you just listening to classical music or were something else on the radio? Uh, mostly radio, actually. I mean, my dad had some records we loved, uh, uh, when my mom and dad would have their date nights occasionally, uh, we'd get out the records and, and I have eight siblings and we would have dance parties would put on the records and he had some jazz. I remember he had West Side Story. He had the Grand Canyon suite. There was some classical mixed in, but we had this whole set of the Reader's Digest. Uh, I, I need to go find these actually. I don't know where the... <laughs> when if we have them anymore but there's this whole set of lps uh that the readers digest put out uh of, of folk songs and different things and we grew up watching donnie and Marie osmond and the lawrence welk show on tv and uh but i'll never forget i i won a, a little boom box uh in middle school one year and in the transition from cassette tapes to cds i remember listening with these amazing speakers to this program late at night that the radio uh uh guys would put on and they were playing um i think it was a, prog a program called star tracks they would play soundtracks from uh from star like uh, outer space kind of movies or, or okay. movies so back to the future star wars star trek uh just and and i was amazed at the sound i fell in love i recorded them all in little cassette tapes you know back in the day when you could make yeah, your record off the radio <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> i remember doing that uh, I, I made tapes that i listened to over and over and over and over and over again uh loved the soundtrack uh, especially john williams it was uh, he's a big influence uh, in my life orchestration the rhythmic complexity the layers the harmonies uh loved it absolutely loved it but yeah. i i um I, I started studying when i was about 14 a piano teacher moved into the area uh, shulamit hoffman she's from south africa originally uh went to the royal academy in in london and and then by a random kind of step uh, steps of finding jobs and she found a husband in canada and an ashram and he found a job in idaho with a computer company anyway i'll sort i hope i got all of those right in there but anyway, <laughs> she, uh, she moved into idaho falls about a half an hour from my house and so i started taking with her and that opened up a whole new world of of discipline and music and and she started lending me some cds chopin and tchaikovsky and uh, and things like that so that was when i really started diving into my older teenage years is when i really started learning more about classical uh music okay that's awesome even, even in my piano solo things i would learn i did uh some some beethoven and things but i would learn the boogie woogie uh uh bumblebee <laughs> <laughs> the boogie woogie version of the flight of the bumblebee oh yeah that's one of my favorites like, like, anyway, great fun we can talk forever about all of that but lots of good so, experiences so i know when i was at rick's uh i sang a an arrangement of yours for a like a new music concert i think it was an arrangement of we thank the O god for a prophet or something like that 
Yeah. And when did you start actually composing or arranging? Like what, what was the bug that drove you there? Um, I don't know what drove me there, but I've always been interested in that as well. My dear mother has been my scribe over time. I have a piece of paper from like sixth grade where she took a sheet of notebook paper and helped me write a song in in kindergarten. Uh, did I say sixth grade? I don't remember what I just said. But anyway, in kindergarten, <laughs> I was six years old. Six years old. There you go. Six years old. <laughs> Uh, so she helped like write it out on a piece of paper. So that's my first little composition. Uh, I can't even sing it for you right now. That was probably a good thing. Uh, <laughs> but I took some some composition lessons from my high school choir teacher, Susan Mann. She was a big influence on my life as well in many ways. Uh, and I started entering some compos- composition contests as a youth. I won the National Reflections Program, second place. In oh, the wow. Reflections Program in the MENC in high school. So uh, my choir teacher and I flew to uh, New Orleans for that conference to play my little invention type in kind of the Bach style Uh solo piece that was the winner for that. And then I studied with Darwin uh, Wilford up at at Ricks College, Uh, also great composer who wrote who wrote oratorios and organ pieces and all all sorts of really wonderful things. So he he taught me and couple of people there. I just have always kept it going on the side. Always been interested in it. And um, it's always fun to look back on your early compositions and you think, what? Now I understand why composers in the past, like we don't have all their work. Because <laughs> we're very much learning in that process. And we need that time. We need those experiences. But sometimes I look back and think, what was I thinking? Yeah. But anyway. It's funny though, that some of those early pieces, like still are these bright shining moments like oh i i found something in that piece but all the rest of them very not so much, much. yes very <laughs> much. So you can kind of point to the ones that do that can't you it's yeah. interesting where you, you work you work you write and then something clicks suddenly in one of them and you think oh that makes sense okay yeah you keep so going. i do want to i do want to talk about another one of your past compositions for a second um so uh, there was a piece that i did when i was at byu the first noel um I believe I did it when when you, we were there, uh, but this arrangement was also recently performed again at BYU, but with a slightly bigger emotional connection. And I'd I'd like you to talk about that for a second. Yeah, uh, the first Noel. Yeah, I wrote that as a grad student there, uh, and and worked with David Sargent, one of the composition teachers there. I was studying with him at that t- at the time, and he helped me learn a lot in that process. Anyway, uh, it's a real honor, first of all, to have the groups there perform because they're so good. You know, you get all of those 400 voices and full orchestra, and it just is such a glorious, beautiful sound. Uh, But the most recent one, they invited me back in 2018 to conduct it as the finale on their Christmas concert, which was a huge honor. I was really grateful for that. Uh, but, But just this last year, it was the final piece on their Christmas program. And a friend of mine from college uh, back in the day sent me a little clip of it in the in the middle of the concert he snuck in a little videotape and said I thought you might want to know that this your arrangement of the first Noel these are the last notes that will sound on this stage before this entire building is demolished and they build a new music building up BYU campus uh and and that was very that was that was the first time I could ever say that my music brought down the house literally <laughs> Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but it was a, it was a real honor. Uh, I was honored to have them include that in their final concert in that in in that concert hall. It was uh, it meant a lot. Yeah. yeah, and it was sad to say goodbye to the Dion Concert Hall. Yeah, yeah, lots of memories in that in that hall in that building. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, now you teach and direct choirs at Virginia Tech. 
So what gives you the most satisfaction as a teacher? Seeing the meaning of music in these students' lives, I think, to see how it impacts them, see how much they love it, and how they... Uh, the depth of meaning as we work on a particular project and they learn the music and enjoy the rewards of a successful performance uh, as they learn vocal techniques, musicianship, and all of those kinds of things to make, to have a really good performance. Uh, that, that, that experience of connecting with their fellow musicians and singing something together really well uh, is, is, is very rewarding as a teacher. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it would be fair to say that you write mainly for choir uh, mm -hmm. in your compositions. Um, so thinking about your students that you might be teaching choral composition to, um, what do you think a good choral composition needs? Are there common ingredients that you think every piece should have? Oh, that's a good question. I, th I, I think one of the main uh, ingredients that most great choral pieces will have is a text that means something. Uh, the, and, and, and it doesn't mean that the text always has to be serious. The text can be delightfully entertaining and fun, but that's an important part of the human emotional experience. Uh, all, uh, so I think great choral music has a text that engages across the spectrum of human emotion and experience in some way. Uh, so I think that's the first big step. And um and then beyond that, there's just so many options of chords and melodies and textures. Uh, you know, there are some of the basic things that we talk about as far as writing in a way that puts the music in a tessitura that's doable, uh, that, that takes advantage of the different colors of the voice in different ranges, uh, and is aware of the textures that happen, the balances and the dynamics, and, and being able to create a texture that communicates the text well. Uh, the, the rhythm of the text is really important. You know, you can have a good text, but if you end up with the, the, the wrong syllables on the strong beats, then it just it throws the whole thing on its head and it doesn't communicate well. <laughs> uh, so we, you know, we talk a lot about those kinds of uh, fundamental principles. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then creating harmonies in a way that creates this uh, unique uh, sound sculpture that's only possible when you put a bunch of voices together where you get overtones, where you get this extra... Uh, fill of sound, this extra body, this extra substance in the sound that you can only get when you have a group of people singing together. It's quite magical. So thinking back on your education, uh, I know you've already mentioned a couple. Who who are one or the two of the key influential teachers that you've had? And what do you think you learned from them that you're still using today? Ah, good question. I think, oh yeah, lots of the ones that I've mentioned already had a big impact. Uh, like Darwin Wolford, one, some of the things I'll forever remember from him are the the um, the detail that, and the care that he took with hand notation, which is something that student, most students don't learn these days. It's all in computer notation software that does half the stuff for you. Uh, but, but knowing exactly what goes where on the page and how to notate it in a way when you have to write it out by hand, I really enjoyed that process. Uh, and mm -hmm. I've always remembered that and that impacts how I put the music on the page. Um, but also some, some of the other com uh, composers that I haven't mentioned yet was working with Mac Wilberg, huge influence on my life. Uh, and I mean, you can hear it in the first Noel, the, the modulations are, are right out of the Wilberg <laughs> modulation. Like, you know, it's great. They work. They're, they're really good. And he, there are others that he was influenced by as well. You know, there's these long trains of influences, but, um, Mac Wilberg for sure is a big influence, uh, especially in choral arranging, uh, the techniques that he uses and things was very, very influential. 
And I'm very grateful for his uh, guidance in all of that. Ron Staley, the repertoire that he picked uh, when I was singing in the BYU Singers, uh, that was a, that had a huge impact on developing my personal aesthetic for choral singing, what's possible in a choir. Uh, and then working with the Dale Warland Singers and he and all of these conductors, uh, Mac Wilberg, Ron Staley, Dale Warland, they all are composers and arrangers as well. Uh, so singing their music and learning from them, both from their music and the music that they select to perform like all of that impacts you because they're only going to pick music that they love so right. you can learn from the different variety of composers that they choose uh to perform as well as learn from their compositions themselves it's really uh you can always learn something whether you, whether whether i'm sitting at a piano playing for a rehearsal or if i'm uh or if i'm singing in the group or if i'm writing something for the group uh, my grad studies at, at University of Texas, I studied with Dan Welcher, and and uh, we would play piano duets through a lot of the masterworks, Beethoven symphonies and Brahms symphonies, things like that. Uh, and and he was very influential, just knew so much music uh, and, and would give good examples of texture and color and orchestration and things like that. Uh, very influential as well. That's amazing. All right. I got one more question for you. When you're not musicking, what do you like to do for fun? What sort of hobbies do you have? <laughs> uh oh that's a good question too i like that question uh I, I i like to be outdoors i don't get outdoors enough uh but i we grew up camping as a family so i love to to hike and be outside um i love to cook actually i like to read uh go to go to shows i try to plan a trip to new york once a year to go see the broadway shows and and some of the uh theater go to museums love travel and museums and uh and reading uh, those are the main things. These days, I I also try to take care of my cat. Uh, cat <laughs> someone's, Chopin. Someone's got to do it, right? Oh, yes, Chopin. Exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. They named well. Some friends of mine rescued him, and they named him Chopin to convince me to adopt him, and it totally worked. <laughs> <That's> uh, <great>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we take a quick break, I'm going to ask Dwight to play a quick game that this week we're calling "You Have How Many Kids." I'm going to ask you a series of five true or false statements about Johann Sebastian Bach. You are a winner just for playing the game, so just do your best. All right. <laughs> All right. Number one, true or false. J.S. Bach had 20 children, including three sons, also named Johann. It was close to 20. I'm going to say true. Well, the 20 was true. The part that was false was the three sons named Johann. He actually had five sons named Johann. Uh, family tradition. Uh, they were usually referred to by their middle names or initials. Uh, Johann Christoph, Johann Gottfried Bernhard, Johann Christoph Friedrich, Johann August Abraham, and Johann Christian. Not to mention his daughter, Johanna. <laughs> <laughs> I love All that. Right. See, I'm learning something from these two. This is good. There I'm you so go. glad at least I got half of that question right. That's good. <laughs> All right. Uh, number two, true or false? Both born in Germany in 1685, J.S. Bach and George Friedrich Handel were fast friends throughout their lives. Oh, unfortunately false. That we is false. All wish that they had met. Yeah. Uh, but is it is it true that uh, Bach tried to meet him and Handel was like, nope? Oh, I don't I, know. I haven't ever heard that story. I have that story in my head from somewhere. I should probably yeah, find out. I have to look true. that one up. Pass it on in my choir literature. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Number three, true or false? Bach was deeply religious and would add to his to even his secular manuscripts the initials INJ in nomine Jesu. Oh, it's it, it, they were different initials. He was very religious, but uh glory be to God, but 
I forgot what the letters were. Well, though. Yeah, and, same. Yeah, Inomina Yesu. Is that um, what they were? So, in Sol. I forgot that, what they were. Soli Domine or something. I forgot what they are. What the letters? Yeah, he are. may have had some wrote? different things, but yeah, that was, that was what I read that he oh, yeah. that he wrote okay. on there. Yeah, staunch Lutheran, very religious. Yeah, exactly. Right. He put that at the end of his. Yep. Good. Yep. Number four, true or false? He came from a musical family. He had several musical children and a plethora of musical grandchildren. True. Well, true-ish. It was true true-ish. about the children, <laughs> false about the grandchildren. He only had one prominent musician grandson. Grand, yeah, the grandchildren I didn't know for yeah. sure. But so I, I guess ancestors and his kids were very musical. Yeah. He was yeah. sort of the peak, and then it sort of faded out after that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, these are good questions. You like throw little tricks in there. Like, uh, I know. I'm tricky. All right, last one. Number five, true or false, his genius and most of his works were not appreciated during his lifetime. That's unfortunately true also. That yeah. is true, yeah. His music wasn't played much after his death until Felix Mendelssohn performed Bach's St. Matthew Passion and people rediscovered the genius of Bach. Yeah. Well, Dwight, thank you for playing the game. You're a winner just for playing, and I hope we, I think we both learned something today. Yeah, so, that's great. After a quick break, we are going to listen to some of Dwight's compositions. Welcome back. This is Steve Danielson. I'm talking today with Dr. Dwight Bigler. So we're going to first start today with Old Joe Clark for SATB, Piano, Spoons, Stomping, and Fun. So this is a, a great example of a folk song arrangement that just sounds like a lot of fun to sing. When you set out to make an arrangement of a folk song like Old Joe Clark, what do you do to make it sound fresh and not overly cheesy? Oh, that's a fine balance to walk, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it, um, I think my approach to that, to this particular piece, actually, I'll just tell you about how this piece came to be. Uh, I knew I, I wanted to write a piece for our, for an honor choir, a two day event with high school students that we were not going to send them the music beforehand. So I knew we had to teach it quickly. They had to be able to learn it in two days. So that meant that I had to write choir parts that were structured well enough that they could learn them very quickly. Yeah. Um, so so there were there are techniques that I used in it, like having the the soprano and tenors, like the first two verses, uh, the soprano and uh, tenors sing the same line and the altos and basses sing the same line. So you can teach it to them at the same time. Right. Uh, just kind of pedagogical strategies that went into the com- composition of it uh, to help it be a quick learn. And uh, but I didn't want it to be boring also. So I put the interest in the piano part. I put the difficult stuff in the piano part and uh, and then wrote in, I think there are 10, diff- there are 10 key changes, if I remember right, in this piece. <laughs> uh, and for singers, key changes are not difficult. You know, it's by ear. You just you move, moveable dough. There you go. Right, right. Move to another area. <laughs> Here we go. It's hard for the pianist. Right, the poor pianist has to <laughs> yeah, there are 10 key changes, but I think it, it, it starts in C and it ends in C so that it, it's only nine different keys that they have to play in. Uh, but for the piano part, I brought in some influences of Gottschalk. I, I imitated uh, all sorts of little fiddle and instrumental kind of stuff in bluegrass tradition. Uh, and, and then tried to that's what really brought the interest uh adding some metric kind of surprises uh unexpected things uh dynamic contrasts pacing the high notes so that you get to that at the end there are things like that but kind of that i use to help structure it so that it's interesting yeah good how did the students respond to it 
they did really well. They enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, the clapping part in the middle, I gave a couple of different, the claps and stomps. I, I, I suggested some choreography for it actually, but you can do it with just uh, stops, stomps and clamp uh, stomps and claps, or just uh, slapping your leg or, you know, whatever. There's lots of flexibility with that, but they always enjoy something like that. Yeah. All right. Well, we are going to listen now to old Joe Clark uh, published by Walton music. Our second piece today, I did not tell Dwight that I was going to pick this one, so this could be a surprise for him. Uh, we're going to talk about a piece that I remember doing at BYU. Uh, we called it Sinner's Redemption at the time, but I believe it was published under the title All Ye Who Are to Mirth Inclined. Yeah. Yeah. So this is for SATB and Wind Ensemble, and I remember loving this piece when we did it at BYU. And I even contacted you many years later, so I get the music for my high school students to sing. Mm -hmm. uh, the mixed meter, heavenly accented phrasing makes this piece infectious. So tell us a little bit about writing this one. Oh my goodness. Uh, you brought up an oldie. Uh, <laughs> this was a, this was a fun one. I found the tune in the Oxford book of, of carols. Uh, and, and I loved the mixed meter, uh, version of it, how, how it kind of shifts throughout. And I love the minor key modal kind of sound and the harmonies that brought with it. Um, and, 
uh, it has an, a, a, a bit of an unwieldy title. Uh, is a lot of words, <laughs> uh, but originally wrote it for brass chorus, actually. So just, I think 13, 12 or 13 brass instruments, just okay. brass. no woodwinds or anything. It was some percussion on the side. Um, and, uh, and then made an adaptation for it for, you can do it with just piano or brass quintet uh, and piano. And um, yeah, I, I, that was a fun one. Uh, it, it was published originally by Oxford University Press. Unfortunately, they, for some weird reasons, it was, it, it was at a time in Oxford University Press's history where they were uh, had a fairly frequent turnover of editors. So the editor that agreed to to publish it was different than the editor that was there when they actually went through the process of doing the layout oh. and whatnot. For some reason that I still don't understand, actually, they um, they decided to only publish the full score. Uh, so if a choir wanted to do it, every person in the choir had to have a full score and there was not a piano reduction uh, that they made available for even rehearsals. Uh, and I, I pushed and begged and pleaded and did not put the, I didn't put it in the contract originally. The, the, the editor in charge at that point said I didn't need to get that specific, but I learned that yes, indeed you do need to get that specific with <laughs> the format of the piece that they want out there. So it, so it didn't sell well. The piece didn't survive uh, at Oxford University Press and is out of print now uh, with them. And I actually have the copyright back. So, if somebody wants okay. to perform, I would love to share it with them. But that was a big lesson. You know, I, I have huge respect for Oxford Univers University Press. Of course, they have such great music out there. But there was it was just a weird situation where yeah. for this particular piece, the person in charge at the time thought, nope, we're just doing this. We're getting this done. Uh, right, but I was well. thrilled with how the piece came across. I think choirs love it. It builds to the end. It has uh, fun instrumentation parts, I think. Uh, and you remembered it, which is a good sign. That. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I, I hope by playing it here that we'll get some more people interested and they can contact you and, and perform Absolutely. this again in the future. So we're going to listen to all you who are to mirth inclined uh, performed here by the combined BYU choirs and wind ensemble.
All right. Lastly, we are going to talk about your major work uh, that premiered last year, Mosaic of the Earth for SATB, Four Soloists, and Orchestra. Uh, 75 minutes long, premiered last April in 2022 by the Virginia Tech School of Performing Arts and the Blacksburg Master Chorale, which you also conduct, yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've had a chance to listen to the entire work, and it's fantastic. We'll we'll only have a chance to listen to excerpts from the full work. I, I do plan on playing a good chunk of it. So let's oh, spend you. a few minutes talking yeah. about the whole thing. So this is a piece about the environment. So d- tell us how it all came about and, and what you want to say about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mosaic for Earth. It is a gigantic piece, bigger than I expected when I first set out uh, on this process. But um, when I first moved to Virginia in about 2009 and began working with this community choir, uh, one of the things I love about community choirs is the diverse makeup of the choir itself. We have people of all ages and backgrounds and a number of Virginia Tech faculty from different departments that love to sing. Uh, And in that group, I met a couple of key figures. Mary Denson Moore was an instructor in the English department and taught an environmental literature class. And she was the board president of the Master Chorale. And so so we got to work together and she shared some of the books uh, that that she teaches in that class. Here in Virginia, there are lots of of environmental issues that we're facing. Mining is a huge issue, um, an impact on the environment here, especially mountaintop removal uh, and the impact that it has on the communities around it, economically, health uh, issues, cancer rates, all of those kinds of things. We have some of the most polluted rivers uh, in the country, fairly close to here. It's a beautiful region. We have some of the oldest mountains in this region uh, on the planet, some of the the oldest and most diverse ecological systems here. Uh, so as, as I started to get to know this, I knew I wanted to write a piece for choir and orchestra. I knew from my experience as an oboist in university back at, in the days of Ricks College, playing in the orchestra, some of my favorite pieces were when we would combine the choirs and orchestra together. I just really loved that combination, that kind of overwhelming and just surround sound of those kinds of things, the impact and power that those can have. Um, and so I thought I would, uh, as I learned about the environmental issues here in Virginia, I thought I, I decided to write an oratorio type uh, piece that it was multi-movement for soloists and orchestra to harness the power of music in a way that could communicate, engage, and spark conversations, and hopefully in the end, spark motivation for people to actually act and do something related to these issues that we're facing, that that are it's impacting everybody on the planet. You know, climate change is happening uh, in, in different ways around the planet, but having a, a big impact overall. Uh, migration and and economic impacts and health impacts, all sorts of things. Um, and so I thought, I've I wondered for a long time how I could contribute something to these conversations. And, and with music, I know that music has a, an amazing power to connect and inspire and motivate. Uh, it's why we have it such a, a powerful part of worship services, for example. It's, it's, it's a great way to bring people together, to teach, to inspire, to lift, and to motivate. Uh, so I, I decided to write Mosaic for Earth um, to, to be my contribution to this conversation, to these really important issues nowadays. Uh, and the name, I didn't know the name until towards the end of the process of, of putting it all together. I was reading all sorts of books. Uh, Terry Tempest Williams was a big influence on the in the structure and the content at the beginning. Uh, her books, uh, The Hour of Land and um, When Women Were Birds. And the book that actually helped me figure out the name uh, was her book, Finding Beauty in a Broken World. 
Uh, and she, in that book, she talks about mosaics and how they're made of broken glass. And when we face these tragedies in, in life uh, that we all do on some level, uh, how do we how do we survive from uh, how do we recover or how do we move on how do we take the broken pieces and make something beautiful so uh, my and and then the, another big key uh, influence in the piece was uh, Barbara Wolf a New York City artist who who did these amazing set of illuminations of Psalm 104 in the old medieval style on actual mm. vellum animal skin painted with beautiful gold calligraphy uh, gold leafed um, Hebrew letters for the for each psalm Psalm and Psalm 104, and then these stunning illustrations that il that have to do with the theme of that particular verse. It kind of follows the Genesis stories, uh, you know, celebrating the the heavens and then the mountains and the oceans and the trees and the birds and the plants and and so there there are nine I think uh, nine or ten of these illuminations and she kindly gave me permission to include them in the concert to show them up on the screens but when I found those works I knew that those were going to be the anchor of Mosaic for Earth because those were celebratory and I didn't want to write a piece that was dark totally dark mm -hmm. uh in my brain, having those celebratory pillars uh, were the key to to the contrasting text that showed what we're what we're in the middle of right now, the challenges that we're facing. It was a key to the dramatic uh, flow of the piece, so that we could have celebration and then juxtaposition with some of the darker texts that describe our current situation, and then back to yeah. celebration. It helps us to see what we're losing and to see what we may lose if we don't do something uh, and act in this in in this area. Yeah. Oh, it really is a mosaic of texts. I'm sorry. I, yeah, I no, you're absolutely, no, you're absolutely <laughs> right. I mean, some of them, some of the movements, if you look at, you know, typical pieces like this, there's one librettist oftentimes. Uh, or, yeah, this or, is a big collection of, of different poets. Like nine and, different poets. Yeah. Yeah, Terry Tempest Williams, Eric Reese, uh, an amazing author here close to Virginia. Uh, he's in Kentucky and he wrote a book called Lost Mountain that uh, that documents the destruction of a mountain called Lost Mountain. Actually, that's its name. Oh. Uh, he, he, he documents the destruction of it over the period of a year through mountaintop removal and looks at all the impact, the corporate uh, kind of uh, uh, involvement in that and how so often in this situ in these situations, especially in this mining region of Appalachia, the resources are just sucked out of there in so many ways. The people who live there, most of them get very few of the of the benefits of this immense wealth that has been created by extracting and destroying these mountains. Um, so Eric Reese and W.S. Merwin, uh, a U.S. Poet Laureate, who has some just amazing poems about environment, a poem by his called, um, uh, I just forgot the name, uh, For a Coming Extinction. Oh my goodness, my brain tonight's tired. <laughs> For a Coming Extinction, which is the, a, a, a poem about a conversation between a human being talking to the black, uh, to the last uh, gray whale as the whale now is extinct and goes to talk to the great creator goes to talk to God and the human being is telling this animal what to tell God about his extinction and what it means for humans and, and what it's a haunting piece actually haunting mm. poem uh, Appalachian poets, uh, uh, Albert Lebeau, uh, archaeologist with the National Park Service who works, uh, I actually found a quote of his in a book by Terry Tempest Williams. I found another text by another author in Eric Reese's book, Lost Mountain. So it really is a mosaic. And a number of the movements have, have texts by multiple authors that are put together that relate and give insights uh, to the topic of, the, of that particular movement throughout Mosaic for Earth. That's great. So if you had... If you were trying to sell someone on this piece and you only had a chance to play one movement, 
for them, which movement would you play and why? Oh, that's a difficult question. Uh, but I think <laughs> three, three movements come to mind. That's more than one. Uh, but I would I would say number seven is a really important movement to the piece because it has this contrast that I'm talking about where it starts with the text from Eric Reese's book with the baritone soloist and also uh, N. Scott Mamaday, Native American author. Uh, the piece starts with encouraging people saying every man ought to have this experience of going into the mountains and seeing the beauty. And then it transitions to a description that Eric Reese has of climbing a mountain and seeing it destroyed. And then it transitions to this beautiful, inspiring text by Terry Tempest Williams saying, uh, talking about the hour of land. Now is, now is the time that we need to reconnect. This is our opportunity to reconnect to the earth and listen to the land first, let our human priority as number one, let that go for a little bit and understand who we are in context of life on this planet uh, yeah. and recognize what that means. Um, and I think it, I think it ends in with a, with a melody and, and harmony and kind of uh, texture that I, that I hope is really motivational and inspiring. So I would say probably number seven, Okay, uh, number 13, the second to last one has a text by Stuart Udall, secretary of the interior of the United States, who writes a letter to his grandchildren about what he hopes that they will do. It's a very powerful and beautiful text. The children's choir sings in that movement. Uh, so probably one of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't hold you to it. <laughs> All right. Well, we are now going to listen to excerpts from Mosaic for Earth performed by the Virginia Tech School of Performing Arts and the Blacksburg Master Chorale conducted by Dwight Bigler.
All right. Well, Dwight, if my listeners want to learn more about you, where can they find you online? Do you have a, a website or yes, a place absolutely. that they should go? Yes. Uh, www.dwightbigler.com. That's just my personal website that I have most of my compositions uh, on there and all of the ones that we've talked about and more. And uh, we actually have a, a website for the Mosaic for Earth project. And I would encourage people to go there as well. Mosaicforearth.org. Uh, it has information about how to get the music. Uh, it's self-published, so they have to order it from me. Um, but it has also instructions for getting permissions and, and some of the details in order to do the work because there are a lot of copyrighted texts in it. Uh, so we, so I've come up with a pretty easy way, hopefully, <laughs> uh, to help people be able to, to, to kind of go through that process really easily. It has recordings and things like that, as well as additional resources about sustainable living and ways that, other ways that you can get involved in in uh, in addressing climate change issues. Uh, so both of those websites, I'd, I would encourage people to visit freely and reach out anytime. Uh, email me any questions, uh, insights, things you want to share. I love to meet new people and make new friends. Awesome. Well, hey, listeners out there, as we are getting close into summer, it's a great time to break out your movable dough t-shirt. What's that you say? You don't have one? Well, you are in luck because right now you can visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough and click where it says merch. And guess what that will do? That's right. It will take you to the Tee Public page where you can get your own movable dough t-shirt. They're soft, they're comfortable, and they're the perfect way to show how much you love the Movable Dough podcast. Visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough today and click where it says merch. Well, Dwight, it has been such a joy to talk to you. Thank you for joining me on Movable Dough. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this. My guest today was composer Dr. Dwight Bigler. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah.